Tonight I'm tasked with introducing our main speakers, Kirk Wabik and Joanne Van Engen. Husband and wife and co-founders of Association for More Just Society, or in short, AJS. AJS is an organization promoting justice in the Central American country of Honduras. Both Kirk and Joanne graduated from Kelvin College in Sociology, and they are still teaching there, co-directing the Honduras program at Kelvin College. Kirk and Joanne have both written and spoken extensively on the current practice of short-term missions and how to do short-term missions better. They have lived in Honduras for over 30 years. Together with four other Honduran friends, they co-founded the Association for a More Just Society in 1998. I first learned about the Ministry of AJS in 2013. Back in 2013, Honduras was a very dangerous place. We visited Christian business leaders and missionaries in Honduras to learn what Christians can do in alleviating poverty. And AJS was one of the organizations that we planned to visit. However, when we were about to visit the AJS office, they told us it was too dangerous to visit them. Instead, they would come and talk us at our hotel. Later in that afternoon, they show up at our hotel. And immediately we saw that they meant business because they were escorted by armed securities. Indeed, what they did was very dangerous. For the next two hours, we heard many stories of corruption and suffering. We also learned how dangerous it was to stand up for justice in Honduras. A lawyer working for AJS, Dionisio Diaz Garcia, was killed by professional hitmen when on his way to court back in December 2006. However, we also learned about the impact AJS had on the lives of Hondurans. We learned how AJS promoted reforms in the education system, the healthcare system, and the police work of Honduras. Amidst the horror stories of corruption, AJS brings courage from a Christian faith into these stories. And this courage has changed the life of many Hondurans. Last year, I returned to Honduras. While Honduras was still poor and dangerous by American standard, I could see that things have improved dramatically between 2013 and 2019. I am sure the Justice Ministry of AJS was a catalyst in this improvement. So may I present Kirk Verbeek and Joe Ann Van Engen. Good morning. It's an honor to be invited to be with you here this morning. And uh, I want to say right from the beginning, I feel very confident that what God is doing in Honduras has applications to Boston and the United States and, and also to China and Asia, where some of you are working. I'm not exactly sure what those uh, applications are. So I hope we can learn that together. But I want to shape my talk today around three stories. Uh, and I want to start with the hardest. 
In 2001, my family and I moved to Nueva Suyapa, which we found out later was the most violent neighborhood in Honduras. We moved there in part because my friend and co-founder of AGS, Carlos Hernandez, had moved there a few years earlier. And I came home one night, and my kids, Anna and Noah, were crying, and they said that the father of one of their classmates had been killed. And I went to talk to Carlos, who lived right next door, and he told me that the father sold vegetables out of the back of a pickup truck. And he had been leaving early that morning to go and buy new vegetables. And three men with ski masks came up and they stole his money. And then they shot him uh, in the head and killed him. I went back home. I calmed on our kids. We said our prayers before bed. And honestly, I didn't think a whole lot more about it over the next couple days. But three days later, the widow went to Carlos's office and she said she knew who the guys were. She had two witnesses who had seen them run around the corner and taken off the ski mask and that they were willing to testify. So if you heard this in Boston, uh, what would you do? I think most of you would go to the police station with the witnesses but if we did that in Honduras, if we went to the police, if it was a good police, it may end up in their arrest. But if they were a bad cop, they may end up going and telling the bad guys who the witnesses were. And it could have put the witnesses and the widow and even Carlos and I and our families at risk. So we started to try and find a police officer that we could trust. And we started calling friends and acquaintances. And a couple of months went by. And it ended up that the three bad guys killed an off-duty cop. And then there was a, a massive hunt for them. And one of them was killed and two of them were arrested. But a few days later, Carlos and I were in his living room talking about this whole situation. And, and about terrible men these guys were. And Carlos said, yes, you know, I know that by my church they killed one and two and three. And I said, well, I, I didn't even know about those cases, but by my church, they killed five and six and seven. And we ended up doing a little more investigation, and we ended up figuring out that they had killed 13 men after we knew who they were. And that felt terrible. It still feels terrible. We knew who they were, and we didn't stop them, and they killed 13 more people. And you might wonder, like, how is that possible? And you would probably wonder even more if I told you that my favorite Bible verse is Micah 6, verse 8. Kind of my theme for today. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So, so how is it possible? How is it possible that I know this verse, that I love this verse? I know God requires us to act justly, and I didn't do anything. And honestly, I, I don't know. I know I was a little afraid, but I don't think, at least in my case, that the main problem was fear. The biggest problem is that we could not trust the justice system which was supposed to protect us. 
the police and the justice system had been corrupted and even been part of the system of violence. And I had a PhD and money and connections. And what about my neighbors who couldn't read and write, who were poor, who had very few connections? So I don't think that I am the exception. I don't think Honduras is an exception. I think this stuff happens all over the world and in the U.S. And that my poor neighbors, like the poor and vulnerable all over, are suffering and dying because police and justice systems don't work for them and are sometimes the source of violence. And we're not fixing that. In fact, we're not even talking about it. And this sort of violence and corruption and systemic injustice is not just killing people, it's hurting people like my neighbors in all sorts of ways. We had a neighbor who started a small pillow business and she had two employees and she was making a bunch of pillows. And three weeks later, the gang showed up and they started taking all of her profits. So she wasn't making anything. She had to close down the business. We know teenage girls who had to stop going to high school because of threats of sexual violence from other kids in the school. Neighbors who stopped going to prayer services in their church because they were afraid to go home at night because it wasn't safe. So violence is not just killing people, it's hurting the poor in all sorts of ways. And this violence and this broken security system doesn't seem to be on the agenda of those of us who care about the poor and want to help the poor. Look at the websites of organizations that you support, organizations like World Vision and Compassion and others. These organizations will help the poor start the small business, but not help them figure out how to, what to do once the gangs start showing up to extort them. We're not talking about it in our churches. Few, if any, of our churches are working on violence in their neighborhoods, or our missions, uh, missionaries are not doing that in the countries they're working in. So why aren't we talking about this? Honestly, I don't know. Uh, it seems like a huge topic, and, it, and it's a big topic right now in the U.S. I think in part it's fear that we're afraid of violence. We're afraid to be victims of violence. Our churches, our missionaries could be victims. But again, I don't think that's the main thing. I think in part we've created a watered-down view of justice. I think in part when God asks us to act justly, we, we, we try and make it something else, something easier. I'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But most importantly, I think that we have been convinced or convinced ourselves that doing justice is, is too. It's too complicated. It's too hard. It's too political. It will take too long. It's too controversial. It's too dangerous. And I think we should ask ourselves, who benefits when we believe that this corruption and violence is too complicated, when, when we just don't act because it's, it's beyond us. I think it is exactly the criminals and the corrupt who are very happy when we decide not to try and fix it because they're going to keep benefiting. So instead of trying to address these injustices and corruption, what we end up trying to do is often build parallel systems. So if the public schools are not working, we'll build a little private school. If the public hospitals aren't working, we'll build a little clinic to help the poor people that we want to help. 
And we often think that, you know, that will be easier. But for any of you who have ever tried to run an orphanage or a clinic or a private school, there's nothing easy about that either. It's very expensive. And it takes a long time and continued effort to keep those going. So I think it's time that we rethink justice and God's call to do justice. I hope you already know God cares a lot about justice. The word justice is mentioned 1,379 times in the Bible. I'll say that again. 1,379 times. It is the second most mentioned theme after love. Like that just shows how much God cares about justice. And, and, and I'm just going to pick a few examples. Two from the Old Testament, two from the New. Second Samuel 12, Nathan confronts David about what he's done with Bathsheba. And, and he says to a prophet telling a king, I am going to bring calamity on you. Like, imagine Nathan's fear, but imagine God, send, God sending Nathan to tell David this, how much he cared, how, much, how angry he was about what David had done. In Amos 2, 6 and 7, God says, I will not relent, for they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. This is Amos, again, talking to the, the wealthy and the elite of his society, risking, I'm sure, being killed or, or, or thrown out of the community. Matthew twenty three twenty seven, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of law and Pharisees. You are like whitewashed tombs, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? This is Jesus speaking to the highest religious authorities and calling them names that uh, I think in the original Hebrew, like my mom would not have liked me saying that. Matthew twenty-one twelve, Jesus goes into the temple and overturns the table and, and weaves a whip to drive out the, the money changers. Like, I wish I would have had that in a, in a Sunday school lesson that we got to practice turning over tables and making whips. But this is Jesus doing this in the temple. So, I mean, I could cite a whole bunch more verses and examples of both Jesus and in the Old Testament and the uh, apostles and their concern for the poor, for the vulnerable, for justice and their anger when leaders of the society were creating injustice. So what is justice? Lots of our churches have service commissions. Some of them have now justice committees. And often what those do is they, they run food pantries or they're digging wells in Africa or we have job training programs. And, and all of those are good things but I don't think those are justice. There's a famous Chinese proverb, which I often quote, and before I did this talk, I made sure that it actually was a Chinese proverb because lots of times we get those wrong. But the, the proverb goes, and, and I probably know it better than I do, but if you give someone a fish, they will eat for, t for the day. And we often call that charity, uh, that we will give them something that's necessary. After a tornado or a flood, people just need food and clothing and somewhere to sleep. But if you teach someone to fish, they will eat for a lifetime. Sometimes we call this development, like 
the poor don't know something. If, if, they, if they learn this thing, they would learn to protect themselves and defend themselves. And, and we do that and we fund that, and this is also appropriate. But what is justice? I, I think, like, in the same example, we could teach someone to fish, and they could get really good at fishing and making a living for themselves. But then the gang comes along and steals their fishing boat. Or corrupt police come along and they fence in the lake so that people can no longer get to where they used to fish. And I understand that in the Chinese proverb you talk about the, the, the river has been muddied. And that's a sign of corruption that people can't catch the fish in a muddied river. So justice, I think, is addressing those issues. The corrupt police, the gang, when, when the waters have been muddied, what, what do we do as Christians? What does God call us to do? And I, there's a, a sort of the dictionary definition of injustice is when an individual or a group misuses their power to take others' life or liberty or the fruits of their labor. So it's misuse of power. I have power and I use it badly to take advantage of others. That's injustice. So the poor have a right to fish and they have a right to their boat. And it's our responsibility to get that boat and that access to the lake back. And in, in my shorthand for justice, I think that justice work is almost always going to make someone mad. If, if no one gets mad, it's probably not justice. If we get the boat back for the poor fishermen, the gangs will be mad. If we get them access to the lake, the police or the people who sent the police will be angry. So when my neighbor was killed, we could have done one of several things. We could have done charity, given the family and the widow some food. We could have done development. We could have given the widow a loan so she could start a tortilla business and protect herself. But no one would have gotten mad, and those were still good things to do. But if we caught the bad guys and ended up putting them in jail, they will be mad. But we will have saved the lives of dozens. We would have saved the lives of at least 13 other people that they killed afterwards. So for me, that's justice work. It's stopping the powerful from abusing their power, often those weaker than them. So what did we end up doing in Honduras? Carlos and I didn't understand the problem very well, but we promised each other in his living room that day that we were going to do something. We were going to figure it out. And we ended up hiring two people. We hired an investigator and a lawyer. The investigator was an ex-cop. And what does an ex-cop know that we didn't know? An ex-cop knows who are the bad cops and who are the good cops. And they would make sure that this case would get handled by the good cops, which is which is what we wanted in the first place. So we brought together witnesses that, the, that we trusted and that, that they could trust. And we already knew that the neighbors didn't trust the police. But we ended up finding out that the police also didn't trust the neighbors. And, and some of this makes sense. Like the police also has family. And so they knew they had to go and arrest three gang members who had guns, who were willing to use them, who had already committed violence. They had to go and knock down their door and arrest them, and they could be killed. And even if they did arrest them, 
the police knew that the witnesses had to show up within 48 hours to testify against them. And if no witnesses showed up, the bad guys would go free. And then they would be even more mad at the police. And it wasn't likely that these witnesses were going to show up because they were afraid, because they lived in the same neighborhood as the bad guys. So the police would say, why am I going to risk my life when I have kids, knock down the door and arrest these people when it's likely that these witnesses will never show up. So we also had to convince, we had to convince the witnesses they could trust the police, but we also had to trust the police that they could trust our witnesses, that they would show up and that we would keep them safe so that they would go all the way through to the trial. We ended up building bridges of trust to restore a broken system, a system that should work and would work, but trust had been destroyed. And what happened? You can see on the PowerPoint, it worked. It worked really well. Violence went down. In our neighborhood, in 2005, we had 42 homicides, almost one a week. Last year, we had seven. And we have been around 10 to 7 for the last 10 years. We have saved over 600 lives if the homicide rate had stayed the same. And this program is now in 10 more communities. So we confronted those who were, who were hurting and killing my neighbors. They got mad, but we ended up doing justice and saving lives and protecting the vulnerable. And it didn't take so long. In just four years, we had the results. It just took two staff people. It wasn't too dangerous or too complicated. Let me go now to a second story. The woman in the picture on the PowerPoint is the president of the Honduran National University, 80,000 students. 2011, the young man in the picture was 19 years old. His name was Carlos. He was on his way to a birthday party. Eight on-duty police officers in uniform, in their police car, stopped him, told him to get out of the car, they were going to steal it. He tried to speed away. He hit the gas instead of getting out of the car, tried to get away from them. They chased him. They ended up shooting the car. One of the bullets went through the car and through his abdomen. Once he was shot, he stopped and he told them, you don't know who I am. My mom is the president of the National University, thinking that this would protect him. But instead, the police called their bosses. They told them what happened, and their bosses said, take him outside of town and shoot him and his friend who was with him, who was un uninjured, shoot him in the back of the head. So what would be our typical response as Christians, as church? We would go and, and visit Julieta. We'd go to her house. We'd bring her some food. We would mourn with her. Maybe raise money to cover some of the expenses. But what would justice do? Based on our experience in Nueva Suyapa, we helped them investigate. We helped Julieta get those cops arrested, and they ended up were convicted. And then Julieta said, I don't want justice just for my son, I want justice for the thousands of sons in Honduras who have been killed by this violence. So in 2012, we started the Alliance for Peace and Justice. And it, it <clears throat> brought together the Protestant Church, 
and the Catholic Church, which is very uncommon, World Vision, the National University. And from the very beginning, our push was that we had to get rid of the bad cops, the bad cops who were involved in, in not doing their job. But we also learned that the problem was not just bad cops. In 2012, San Pedro Sula, which is the second largest city in Honduras, about a million people, had almost 30 homicides a week. They had 30 homicides a week, but they only had 22 homicide investigators. So each homicide detective was getting about a case and a half every week. And they only had two pickup trucks. So imagine, even if you were a good cop, how do you investigate that many cases and you have no way to get around to to investigate them? So it wasn't just bad cops. We needed more cops. We needed more vehicles. And so we started developing a proposal. We had press conferences. We had meetings with the president. We put on pressure to say, this has to be fixed. And what happened? You can see in the graph here next to me. After violence had been increasing in every year from 2005 to 2012, in the next three years, homicides went down 40% in just three years. Just in those three years, we saved 1,400 lives if homicide rates had just stayed the same. Seven million Hondurans feel safer. Again, we confronted those who were abusing their power, drug traffickers, corrupt police. Many of them got mad. They went to jail, but we were doing justice. And again, it did not take so long. It wasn't so complicated. It wasn't so hard. In just three years, we had these results. So now my my third and last story. Since in 2012, Honduras had the highest homicide rate in the world, Julieta's son was killed, and our number one demand of an alliance is the police force needs to be purged, was the word we used. It needed to be cleaned up. They had to get rid of the bad cops. The government made three different attempts to do that, and all of them failed. Out of 13,000 police, they would fire 20 or 30 or maybe 100, and often not even no one at a high level and not any, none of the ones that everyone knew were bad. So in 2016, the Honduran president decided to name a new purge commission. And he asked if AJS would be willing to have four of the six seats on that commission. We had a very difficult decision, very risky, very risky to our reputation, to our lives, Risky that it would fail and, and, and we would be seen as a laughing stock, a disaster, or, or that there would be violence against us. But we ended up saying, what would justice do? What would God have us do? And we said yes. And over the next two years, AGS did just that. We ended up evaluating 14,000 police officers removing over 5,000 of them. Almost over a third of the police force was fired. All of the top two tiers of the police force were let go. And we didn't stop there. It wasn't just about cleaning up the old police force. We ended up helping design a whole new curriculum, 
12-month-long training program, and over 7,000 new police officers have now been uh, hired. And we hope to double the size of the police force by 2022. And as you can imagine, this work was dangerous. So Jorge Machado here in the picture was a pastor and one of the members of the commission. And he and his wife were going out to buy groceries one night early on in the process. They'd been working two or three months on the purge. He was going out to get groceries, two SUVs with six guys. They came out of the car with automatic vehicle, automatic weapons, and they shot at Jorge and his wife. They ended up killing one of his bodyguards. The other was shot eight times and survived. Luckily, Jorge and his wife were not hurt, but they had to leave the country. They ended up moving to Texas and have started a new life there. So this work is not always easy. It's not always safe. But what has happened? Four years later, look at the homicide graphs from 2005 to 2019. Homicides are almost, are down over half, almost a third of what they were just eight years ago. Imagine that, bringing down homicides almost two-thirds in just eight years through this work. Thousands of lives have been saved. We have been doing justice. And not just the violence is going down, people are starting to trust the police again. And just like we saw in our neighborhood, it's now happening at the national level, where people are starting to say, yes, I know that if I am a victim of crime or I see a crime, I can go to the police and, and the police can also trust victims that they will show up for uh, hearings and show up to testify against the criminals. This is so exciting. I feel so grateful to have been a part of this work, of what God is doing in Honduras. And today I've just told you three stories of how God helped us figure out how to make our neighborhood safer, then how to make all of Honduras safer, and to make huge improvements in the quality and the quantity of the Honduran police force. And if I had time, I could tell you about a whole bunch of other things we've been doing. Our work in education, our work in health, drug trafficking. We, we have gotten economic and political elites of Honduras put in jail for corruption. So in 2012, the U.S. government, the U.S. State Department, said that Honduras was on the edge of being a failed state. Like, it, it, Honduras was, was not working, and there was danger that everything was going to go out of control. Eight years later, uh, there is still a ton of work to do, but those trends have changes, changed. There's reason for hope. And, and what a privilege it is that God has allowed me to be a part of that in a, in a country. I wasn't born there, I didn't belong there, and, and yet I've been chosen to be a part of that. So I want to end with four things that I think we have learned and I hope will help you going forward. First of all, I want to keep thinking and I encourage you to think about what is justice? Not 
Not everything, if everything is justice, nothing is justice, right? Not everything is justice. The food paint pantry, the job training, the water in Africa are all good things, but I don't think those are justice work. Justice is about stopping bad people from misusing power. It's, it's going to make someone mad. And justice is more than the, the hot topics, the topics we often hear mentioned today, like sex trafficking and child slavery. We need to see that justice work is much bigger than that. The poor are suffering in Honduras, in Asia, in Boston, in San Francisco, in all sorts of ways, with really terrible education, with terrible health care, or facing fear of violence, not, not having a police force they can trust. So we need to figure out how to address those issues wherever God has put us. Second, injustice is not just in Honduras. It's not just in poor countries. The U.S. has justice problems. Four of the most violent cities in the world are not in poor countries. It's St. Louis, Detroit, New Orleans, and Baltimore. I find that crazy. There's no other rich countries. There's not a single European country with a city even on the list. But, but the U.S. has four. So it's not that just the poor are suffering from violence in Honduras. They're suffering in the U.S. It's not that just Hondurans distrust the police, and we know this. Poor people in the U.S., in Ferguson, in Cleveland, in Baltimore, also distrust the police. And the police also don't trust neighbors here. So it's, I, I get excited about this because I think things we have learned in Honduras could help the U.S., could help Boston, could help Baltimore. And that seems right. When, when we talk about Honduras being a poor country and in need of development, it seems that in the past I always talked about you know, the, the, the Honduras had to learn from the U.S. But when we talk about justice, it's not a one-way street. Honduras has injustices. The U.S. has injustice. Every, every country. And there are things that we are learning in Honduras that we could apply in the United States. Third, I think we need to stop listening to our culture and even our Christian culture which is telling us a lie that our number one priority should be to be safe. In, in fact, maybe even a little more, that our comfort is very important to God. When we look at the life of Jesus and the prophets and the apostles, their number one priority was following God's call, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with their God. That was their number one priority. And they would include doing risky things. And God knew that and called them to it anyway. But our culture, and I think even our Christian culture, says, yes, it would be good if we were working in downtown Boston, in downtown, maybe if we should even move into those neighborhoods. But that sounds dangerous, and people are going to get mad. And then... What we often come to is this statement by people, you know, I would be willing to do this, but what about my kids? I can't put them at risk. Where would they go to school? 
So if you know me, I'm not suggesting we do stupid things, that we don't think and try and make wise decisions. But I think God calls us to go to places that are violent and corrupt and that God will take care of us. God will protect us and our children. And that that objection that this won't be comfortable, that it won't be as safe as living in the suburbs is, is not enough of an objection to not follow where God is calling us. And finally, I think we need to stop believing the lie that doing justice, that changing systems, stopping corruption and violence is too, too difficult, too hard, will take too long, is too complicated. Exactly the thing that the corrupt and the criminals want us to believe. We need to stop believing that we just need to set up parallel systems. You know, if the public schools and hospitals aren't working, we just set up private ones. We took on the gangs in our neighborhood and in the country, and we saw results in three or four years with not a lot of budget, with not a lot of people. So I know it's not always going to work that way. We won't even always be successful, but I know that God always calls us to do justice. And God has promised that he will be on our side. So God is calling me and you to act justly. I would ask you to support our work in Honduras, to support AJS, as we continue to try and bring hope and do justice in Honduras. But I also want to challenge you, wherever you are, to think about what it means to do justice in Boston or in San Francisco or in Asia, and especially about the broken violence and justice system. Who is it who's abusing power where you are? And who is being hurt? Who, who, is, who, is, who is doing the injustice and who are those victims of injustice? And then what can you do to stand up for those who are victims? It, it, will, it will make people mad, but that is what God is calling us to do, to do justice. And I want to end by, by thanking you for this opportunity. But I also want to end by going back to Micah 6, verse 8, just as a reminder to what God is calling us to do. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What is good, but also what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Thank you.